Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called, Are the Old Political Parties Dying? Okay, my name's Joel Cohen, I'm an Associate Fellow of the Academy of Ideas, and I'm really delighted to be joined here by a really top expert panel to discuss a question that has taken on definitely a lot more significance in the last week, though of course it's an important conversation that has been programmed and planned for some time. Um, So I'll start off introducing our speakers. Uh, Sitting furthest from me to your right is Tom Slater, who's Deputy Editor of Spiked. Um, Next we have Miranda Green, who's a columnist and Deputy Opinion Editor at the Financial Times. Uh, She's also a former Lib Dem advisor and makes regular appearances on broadcast uh, TV and radio. We have Sherelle Jacobs, a columnist at The Telegraph, also often seen commentating on the various news of the day, as well as John Mills sitting to my right, um, who's a businessman, economist and writer, uh, and most recently published a book, Left Behind, Why Voters Deserted Social Democracy and How to Win Them Back which I believe is available in the Battle Bookshop. Um, And finally, we have Johnny Ball, who's a special projects writer at The New Statesman. So our subject is, are the old political parties dying? And I hope we can have quite a free-flowing discussion. I'm going to start with one, at most two questions up here, up on our panel, and we'll be coming straight out to you. So I'd encourage you to be ready with your questions. This is the kind of political futures strand. Um, Predictions in politics are famously increasingly hard to make. But luckily, this is a kind of not so distant political future um, aspect of today's programme. Um, So some of the trends that we'll be discussing are the kind of extent to which Brexit has eroded the tribal support that has kept and sustained political parties, whether or not political parties are still can still be considered a kind of broad church um, capable of containing lots of different diverse viewpoints and backgrounds what the impact of having a wider range of choices with new and old parties in competition will likely be on political events um, so I'm going to start off kind of going this way down the panel start off with you Johnny um, do traditional parties ultimately still dominate or is the tide turning for them I think Really, they do dominate. Uh, two years ago, in 2017, Conservatives and the Labour Party got 80% of the vote together. Um, who knows what's going to happen come uh, December. But I think because of the first-past-the-post system in this country, it's very difficult for third, fourth or fifth parties to emerge. In the 83 election, there was meant to be an SDP surge. And there was. They got 25% of the vote, but about 20 seats. And Labour got 27% of the vote, and they got 200-odd seats. And that's the system that we have. We were meant to have a Lib Dem surge with Nick. I agree with Nick. And it never happens. I think they got 50 seats that election, and they were wiped out the one after. So it's very difficult for these parties to, to come through. And I don't think... I can't imagine Brexit. The Brexit party will get any more than a couple of seats, maybe even zero. We saw what happened to UKIP. They got 4 million votes one election and got one seat. The exception is Scotland, where... I think, you know, the, the SNP has sort of taken over Labour's mantle as the, the main progressive party, but they've, they've, they've done it by mimicking Labour's sort of centre-left values. Um, and Labour, Labour are getting squeezed in Scotland from left and right because 
Ruth Davidson's brand of sort of progressive conservatism squeezed Labour from that end, from the unionist end as well. I think because of first past the post, we don't see changes from without, we see changes within parties. And the Conservative Party is, is endlessly adaptable. And as we've seen over, since 2015, the Labour Party <laughs> is changeable as well. Um, so yeah, Boris Johnson sort of, uh, he's, he's, I, think, I think what Cummings has realised is that the, and, and Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, Theresa May's advisors, realised to an extent is that the public are left-wing on economic terms. They want nationalisation, they want state intervention, they want higher salaries, workers on company boards, that kind of thing. They're sort of social democratic on the economy, but right on cultural and social issues like immigration, uh, prison sentences, law and order, sort of patriotism, civic pride, that kind of thing. And I think what Boris Johnson and Conservatives are doing are trying to sort of eke into that uh, traditional sort of uh, economically left, but yeah. perhaps socially conservative demographic. Thanks. John? Well, my main concern recently has been what's happened to social democracy as opposed to democratic socialism. And uh, if you look at what the situation was in 2000, only 20 years ago, almost all countries in the Western world had social democratic governments or coalitions where social democrats were in a prime position, whereas now practically none have, apart from maybe Spain and Portugal, there's not a single other one left. And, and what has happened is that uh, in all these countries, the original social democratic party has either nosedived into more or less oblivion, like PASOK in Greece or the Parti Socialiste in France, or they've migrated quite substantially to the left, as has happened with the Labour Party in the UK. Uh, it's happened with uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States. It's happened with Melanchthon in France. And this has left a rather different political kind of spectrum. Now, the real question is, is this going to be a trend which is going to last, or are we going to move, migrate back to the uh, two-party system, at least in this country, where, as Johnny says, the, the pressures from the first-past-the-post-electoral system are so great... And I think, you know, as, as uh, Joel said, it's very hard to predict anything in politics these days. But I think, broadly speaking, what's going to happen is we probably will migrate back uh, a bit anyway towards a two-party system. And I think it was 83% of all the MPs elected uh, in a Parliament in 2017 uh, were either Labour or Conservative. I think you may get a larger number of non-Labour and Conservative MPs next time round uh, the prediction is more than 100 of those, and I think this is going to produce a pretty unstable parliament for the next period. Personally, if you ask what's likely to happen in the election, again, it's very difficult to predict, but my guess is what will happen is that the Labour Party will do rather better than the polls that we see at the moment might suggest. The Conservatives will do rather worse. You'll finish up then with a parliament with no overall control, but with probably 75% or something like this remainers among the MPs who have been elected. And that does seem to me to be a, a recipe for instability for quite a long period ahead. And what, what is going to emerge from that in terms of the long-term trends, I think it's very hard to predict. But I think the pressures from the first-past-the-post system towards having, broadly speaking, a coalition on the left and the coalition on the right as the main parties is pretty strong and may have an influence that will produce that outcome. Thank you. Sherelle? I think that the main parties are in a vegetative state, basically, and that the first-past-the-post system is basically the life support machine that is keeping them going. It's going to be really interesting to see the outcome of um, this election. I, I would say that since the 1950s, we have seen the slow 
weakening of the two-party system due to a number of factors, um, the decline in people's affiliation with parties based on their class, um, the rise of, sort of alternative um, political identities, whether that's um, environmentalism or other such things. And now we see with the rise of social media, sort of pe people's echo chambers are becoming smaller and smaller. So you can talk to smaller and smaller groups of people which reinforce your views, um, which makes it um, more likely that you will decide to vote for a smaller party, be it the Brexit party or the Liberal Democrats or the Green Party. So all of that stuff is, is ongoing. I am one of those people, I tend not to want to put it down too much to the voters have changed, but I think the politicians are failing. I think that's part of the reason why the two main parties are struggling. It's because they are failing to articulate a vision of the future, ultimately, which resonates with people and what we are seeing today is this rise on all sides of this sort of dystopian politics yep. so you have this middle england dystopia which is increased bureaucratization we're sleepwalking towards this federalist anti-democratic system um more the metropolitan dystopia which is um you know environmental armageddon nobody's gonna be able to buy a house etc etc and you have the sort of working class um, perhaps in the north midlands um dystopia which is you know no jobs economy rigged against us etc and i think it's the first time actually if you look historically where you have all the main sections of society who feel like there is not um a way forward that they can see and they they feel completely disenfranchised by politics which has frankly become sort of a branch of managerialism and the main parties need to find their answer and if they don't find their answer then yeah even with the first past the post system i think that they are long term in trouble and we're going to continue to see this fragmentization of politics thank you um, miranda would you agree with that yeah i i think Sherelle's sort of battle of the dystopias is a really brilliant way of putting it, actually. And I'd never thought of it like that before, so thank you. Because, uh, you know, on the way to this session, I was sort of just talking to Tom and saying, you know, I've been covering this crazy period of politics since the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. And that, to me, seemed like the point at which... That 2014, with the European elections in which UKIP did so well, plus the independence referendum in Scotland, it felt like a moment when this earthquake really, really began. And it's been a kind of exhausting <laughs> ride ever since. But it, it does feel quite dark. And I think that you've really put your finger on something, actually, about people being motivated more by the fear mm. that they're trying to ward off than by a positive vision, although obviously people are very committed on the on the left would say that it is a positive vision uh, through, through Corbynism, etc. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I'd just like to sort of emphasise that by saying that when I was writing about the Scottish independence re referendum at the time, somebody said to me it was, and this is about as, as sort of utopian as you can get, I think, about the changes in politics. It was the taste, like tasting the pure bubbling water of democracy in that plebiscite. You know? So there's a way in which all of this upheaval of politics that we've seen 
you know, I would love to believe that we can actually use it as a turning point to revive yeah. politics and reconnect and, you know, think about our institutions, think about the failures of the two main parties and why. Because obviously what everyone has said is quite right. The first past the post system makes it almost impossible for people to break through as a new representative parliamentary force unless you then go into a coalition and are punished by the voters as happened to the Lib Dems in 2015. So the kind of business model for insurgency doesn't really work in our parliamentary system but you can't deny that there's a thirst for it mm -hmm. so there is an appetite out there for doing things differently it's a question of whether we can actually yeah. harness that in some positive way and i just want to reinforce one one more thing this question of the fracturing it's really significant in this election you know and um even though uh, you know, fast, first past the post seems to have had its day. You've really got kind of almost like European voting patterns mapped onto first past the post, and it just doesn't work. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that comes out. And also, I think something that my colleagues here on the panel have hinted at, when you start to get parliamentary seats won on less than 30% of the vote, when you start to get governments in power who haven't really got a majority and are then, you know, the question of a mandate and legitimacy then becomes a yeah. real problem and how we address that as well, I think, is something that we need to think about. Yeah, the kind of none of the above democracy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Tom, finally, and then I'm going to come straight out to the audience if you want to start showing your hands. Mm. Um, so kind of notwithstanding what's going to happen with the election, which, I, which I'm sure we'll all get into soon, I think it's just worth looking at the kind of broader view, um, which is the fact that the two main parties in particular are kind of relics of the 20th century. You know, they... they no longer really makes sense insofar as accurately kind of representing the cleavages in society, the clear-cut constituencies in society. And I think what's interesting is that obviously we've been delivered this huge political upheaval in the form of the Brexit vote, but that was something which existed almost independently from the party system. You know, throughout most of this process, the only party in Parliament that was pro-Leave at the time of the referendum was the DUP, you know. And over the past year, we've actually grown another pro-Remain party in Parliament in the, in the form of the hilariously misjudged Changed UK project. Um, so we have this huge kind of new cleavage that appears in society and yet nothing that can accurately really reflect that. I think what we're seeing is... Um, Again, those kind of old loyalties start to break. So John Curtis has pointed this out. It's mentioned in the blurb that now 44% of people very strongly identify with Leave or Remain, and only about 9% of people very strongly identify with any of the political parties. And what's interesting is that, particularly from 2017 to now, you have seen Tories and Labour try to respond to this. You know, you are seeing a bit of a repolarisation around those two issues, but it's imperfect, and it's almost like the ground shifting beneath them and making the edifice crack in the process. And it raises a lot of questions about what these parties are supposed to be for <laughs> and who they're supposed to be for. So by some hilarious kind of historical accident, you've got the old party of the establishment hitching its wagon to a populist democratic revolt <laughs> and saying fuck business in the process. It's a very, very strange state of affairs. I might not be the only person who's noticed that you're now seeing loads of Tories going on television and talking about how the people are sovereign. Mm. This is really weird, you know, so and that's something that's worth pointing out. <laughs> And then on the other side, on the Labour side, by a combination, I think, of, of Brexit as well as Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, you have a party that says it's for the many, not the few, but is effectively trying to overturn the biggest vote in British political history. Um, you've got an allegedly far more pro-worker 
Labour Party, which is supported by far fewer working class people than almost ever before. Um, and you've also got a party which is nominally um, at, in favour of a real red-blooded socialism, but within the European Union, um, which is a contradiction in terms. So I think that while, whether or not the kind of current party system will continue to leap up, limp on, of course it will, for all of the reasons we've, we've mentioned, the first-past-the-post system, the barriers to entry. But at the same time, I think we do need to recognise that these parties are clapped out and the more that we can do to try and find new forms you know new organizations new parties to try and challenge that i think the better yeah thank you very much right the show hands immediately i love it great so you're on really good comments from the panel i agree um very good way of putting it first past the post is kind of putting the parties on life support and this is one of the reasons as a disillusioned labor supporter over the last few years i've decided to campaign for pr a lot because I think we've got multi-choice in so many areas of our life, but in politics we're expected to have the same choices, even though for many Labour supporters and members, Corbyn is the antithesis of that, the choice they want, and um, I, don't, I can't bring myself to vote Labour at this election. I really can't. But I'm wondering, you know, in a kind of utopian uh, scenario, perhaps, uh, maybe once we get PR, then what might happen? You know, because we all know what the problem is, uh, that we don't have a proper democracy, the solution might be yes. I just want to, I want to answer the question: Are they are they dying? Um, no, but they should be. Thank you. Just wanted to make two uh, quick points. Uh, first of all, um, the first past the post system seems to be generally disparaged uh, on the panel. Um, um, but proportional representation has got a massive disadvantage. That it gives huge power to the third party. Uh, they can I can they can choose which. Of the other yeah, two major parties can, can, can uh, yes exactly so so it gives massive uh, over uh, representation to the third party so I think that's a major disadvantage. Um, the other thing is that we talked about this um, battle of the dystopias, um, which I think is an excessively miserableist view of things. Um, and I think uh, for all his faults, uh, Boris Johnson does have um, a certain amount of optimism. And I think this could be his unique selling point in the coming election and maybe a big strength. Thanks. <clears throat> I just want to say. Similar to what your friend was saying, your friend was saying that the first pass of post system does give you a direct relationship with your MP, and part of the Brexit revolution is because you don't have a direct relation with your MEP. That's the problem. I ca most people here will be able to name their MP because it's first pass the post, but they most probably couldn't name their MEP, and that's the strength of it. And the second point is, I'd just like to point out that the most catastrophic bit of legislation in recent history has been the effect of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, and that was a, the result of a coalition. I was really interested in Miranda's comment about the thirst for democracy that came out of the uh, Scottish referendum. It seems to me that there's something happening internationally, not just in Europe, but with the Hong Kong protests, think about the Gilets jaunes, this, uh, recent things in South America. There seems to be a worldwide thirst for democracy, which strikes me as we've talked before about the end of left and right, which really came out of a capitalist system, um, a, a class-based analysis of the working class, the ruling class, etc. Is there something about globalisation that is changing the nature of how we see ourselves represented within the political system? And is that what's giving rise to this universal, seems to me, thirst for democracy, or is it something else? Um, thanks. I'll take one more question from the person on the end of your row. Yeah, I do think that there is a thirst to... Um 
maybe not everywhere it's um, more democracy, but at least something happening. I'm from Germany and um, over there we have most established parties just going to the center and all together they're creating a sort of stability, but nothing really changes. They don't have a backbone. I couldn't say what the uh, Socialist Party in Germany is about because they're gonna t uh, they're going to um, make a coalition with the conservatives anyway, and they're not gonna do what they promise. And that's why there's the uh, AFD, the Alternative for Germany, which is on the rise right now. They're getting around 30% already, and. Um, they do have a backbone, they do promise change, and they don't go with uh, what everyone else says, the, yeah, as everyone else says too, we need to protect nature, because that's what everyone says. They make their own opinions, and I see similar things in the Yellow West uprising, because they did want change, they did want the fuel taxes lowered, or they did want to remove them, and also Brexit, they did want change and they didn't see it anywhere else. I'm going to come back to our uh, panel now. Should we start again on this side? Johnny, do you want to pick up on anything? There's quite a lot in there in terms of, you know, first past the post, which you started us out on, the kind of relationship that one has with an M MP or an MEP, um, whether or not globalisation, which I guess gets into the kind of political tribes or new political identities type questions, impacting how we approach political parties today. Yeah, with, with first past the post, I, I remember... Uh, sort of general studies GCSE or A level when you sort of looked at the advantages and disadvantages of PR on first past the post and it was first past the post uh, produces stable governments and that hasn't been true for, for a long while um, but that's not to say that there aren't problems with PR as you said uh, as one of the audience said um, it gives huge power to third parties not just that um, the gentleman from Germany said um, that basically Everyone's manifesto is watered down. So it doesn't matter what people promise in the election, whether it's from the centre-left or the centre-right, if they're just going to form a coalition. And basically, they're not all things to all men. They're nothing to anyone. <laughs> so then you get the AFD. And also, with PR, there's a lot of sort of shady backroom deals. It's, it, it's like that series Borgen. You know, you have the election. Nobody has a majority, of course. They all go into a, a, a sort of... Uh, you know, a smoke-filled smoke room for five weeks and it's all I scratch your back, you scratch mine um, and they make deals and they, and they do trade-offs and it's not particularly transparent, it's not particularly open. Yeah. So all these systems have, have their, their, their positives and negatives, yeah. basically. And I'm not sure I completely agree that uh, the working class has abandoned labour en masse. I mean, there's... I, I said this yesterday, but I'll, I'll say it again anyway. <laughs> that when you when you rank all the constituencies by uh, multiple indices of deprivation, um, and you colour them red or blue according to whether they're, they're Labour or Tory, the more the more the further you go towards the, the most deprived constituencies, the more uh, the more red seats you get. And the most deprived constituency, Liverpool Walton, uh, returned the Labour MP last election with eighty five percent of the vote. Um, so I, I don't I, I understand this argument that. The, the, there's a disconnect now with the Labour Party it's kind of more, more seen as the party of sort of metropolitan liberal graduates and Brexit has exacerbated that yeah. but I wouldn't subscribe to it fully John 
Yes, I think it's a really interesting question about why is there so much disillusionment at the moment? Why are so many people so discontented? Why have you got all these populist movements all, all over the place? And I think the real reason for this is that the whole of the Western world has done very poorly in terms of economic growth over the last few years, at the same time as wealth in particular has polarised and rich people have got richer. And if you look at the distribution of income in this country and the the experiences they've had. I mean, it's pretty bad. Over the last uh, 10 years, the total increase in the median income has been barely 1% a year. And uh, if you look at the, the extent to which rich people have got richer, I mean, the stock exchange has roughly doubled in, in, in its index, and so housing costs, of, uh, housing values rather, have gone up enormously. And, and really, if you look at where the, the dividing line is, I think it's broadly speaking and this is very much reflected in the Brexit vote in 2016, between those who've done well out of globalisation and internationalism and uh, these sort of trends and those who've done really badly out of it. And a lot of it's to do with the deindustrialization that's taken place in this country and the huge polarisation there is now between the uh, extent to which London is prospering and the rest of the country isn't. And these are trends which have replicated themselves in slightly different forms right across the Western world producing all this discontent and uh, I think the main reason why therefore that uh, there is uh, the rise of populism and the difficulties we're all facing at the moment uh, is because of uh, low rates of economic growth. I think there are other factors as well. The whole redistribution system I don't think has worked very well. Uh, I think people yeah. have been really hard hit by austerity over the last few years and feel uh, very... Do you think directly kind of classes back in how, in how we understand how people vote? I, I, I think it is, although I think people are also very much turned up with values as well as uh, economic issues. Um, and the Brexit issue is one that cuts right across the party yep. loyalties. One of the reasons why we're in the middle of the mess we're in is because 52% of the people in this country voted for Brexit in 2016, whereas 75% or something of MPs uh, Remainers, and I think that's likely to be the outcome of the next general election. So, what I would really say in conclusion on all this is that as long as we maunder along with growing at 1% per annum, the rich getting richer, and really effectively no wage increases for most people, you're going to get loads and loads of instability. Yeah, sure. So, I'll try and deal with first past post. Uh, my miserableist um, thesis and also globalisation as quickly as I can. Um, so with first past the post, I mean, I, I hear the people saying that fiddling too much with our parliamentary system doesn't necessarily um, help solve the issue. I think the issue is a lack of ideas, a lack of inspiration. It's performative. The, the, the problem is the parties aren't performing. Um, that's to say, even if you did um, tweak the system, if you have... You know, if you have two parties that are doing their job, then that's not to say that they can't win a majority in, in a different system, um, especially if we have a system which hot really holds the feet, their feet to the fire, as it were. Um, so it's an open question about, about whether um, sort of uh, first past the post, whether trying to tweak it um, really solves the problem. I think the problem is, is with the parties um, themselves and the lack of ideas in politics. Um, to deal with 
the I what I was trying to get across with the dystopia hypothesis is that parties which are able to light the way out of the dystopia are the ones that are going to win majorities. I don't disagree with you about Boris. Boris's strength has been his optimism, his very strong ability to encapsulate the spirit of Brexit, which is about independence, which is about um, Britain finding its place in the world, which is a confident place. And I think there is some worry that at the moment the campaign's a bit robotic. It's a bit, let's get Brexit done so that we can spend slightly less than the, than Labour on public services, which isn't going to cut it. Um, but yeah, I think it is all about um, who can light the way out of the dystopia and the, the future of politics belongs to them. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. These, these things aren't done in the first instance Miranda um, okay I will also try to be really really quick um, your point about thirst for democracy and what's happening across the world absolutely I mean there's no sort of stable region at the moment and uh, you know the kind of thirst manifests itself in different ways in different countries right and you know I was just reading on the way in a very old piece that I hadn't got round to by a colleague of mine Ed Luce who writes in, on America about the, the, the new redneck movement in the Virginias where they're adopting the red bandana that used to be the mine workers having pitched battles with the private security armies of the mining companies and they're now trying to revive this idea of working class rebellion against enormous corporations grinding the farming communities into the ground, you know. So, it, do you know what I mean? There's a sort of really interesting phenomenon of this thirst for representation and also sticking up for the people who... John, John is, is quite right to remind us that a lot of this is about economic disempowerment and people feeling that the system is unfair and the system is rigged. And it's a question of, you know, as, as Cheryl has said, and as everyone has said, really, you know, it's a question of how you try and find, you know, political system ways of harnessing that for change. And that's what, unfortunately, nobody's really got the answer to, which is partly Shirelle's point about the, the vacuum of ideas. So I would say, I mean, I, I, obviously, I know what you mean about Boris's optimism, and I also know what you mean about what do you do in a system where everyone's then just promising things in their manifesto, which can be traded away after election time. But it's really important to have a conversation about what we can change and what might work. I mean, you know, I also agree there are problems with... PR, but I would just say in defence of the PR proposition, not that I'm totally sold on it myself, you, everything's a coalition. Every big party is a coalition. And every party is doing backroom deals in smoke-filled yeah. rooms. In and fact, increasingly have, failing at yeah, it. Yeah. And if you have, you know, but the problem with the two main parties, which is our topic for today, is that those coalitions are breaking down and the backroom deals don't work anymore because it's so fractured. So, you know, do you want transparent coalitions or do you want coalitions within big parties? Because that's your choice. You can't abolish the idea of a coalition in politics because that's how you get broad support and a mandate to govern, whether it's in first past the post or under under PR. I'll stop now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, the kind of ev absolute exodus in the run-up to a general election when it really matters. On the one hand, you've got the kind of Jewish Labour movement type people who said explicitly as a Labour movement they're not going to be campaigning for their party. And on the other hand, you've got the kind of One Nation caucus of the Tories who were just absolutely evacuating the stage as quick as possible to not have anything to do with it, as we saw with kind of Margot James this morning and before. Tom, quickly, um, yes, and then back out. Very quickly. Um, 
globalization, people who've lost out from globalization, I think one thing which is under discussed in this is not necessarily the economics, but also the fact that for whatever reason, globalization has also meant democracy being eroded, vesting more and more of our um, you know, competencies in unaccountable institutions. And that's something which I think we're also feeling reverberations of. Quickly in response to Johnny about the, the point about class and labor. No one's saying that obviously, you know, labor is no one working class votes for Labour at this point. But it is true that at the last election, for the first time in modern British political history, um, class was no longer a determining factor. And I think if you're in a situation where the Labour Party um, cannot really pick up that support, it is a fundamental shift. If, it, if this is a Britain in which the working class look at the Tories and Labour and think, ah, I could go either way, that's something that we have to um, reckon with. And just quickly on this point that was um, raised up here, um, I think it's interesting as well that... Um, the failure of the left to respond to this moment in particular is something that's really worth looking at. I mean, recently and in recent years, we've talked a lot about the crisis of social democracy um, across Europe, the way in which all of these social democratic parties basically capitulated to kind of technocratic neoliberalism and really drifted away from their core support as a result of that. What I think is interesting now is the few little sparks of kind of left populism in response to all of that are also starting to capitulate. You know, the five-star movement um, in Italy going, getting into bed with a democratic party... Jeremy Corbyn becoming a Remainer. <laughs> All of this stuff, I think, is also demonstrating the fact that um, the left, for whatever reason, has failed to grasp this situation, which I think is a, is a huge shame and leads to a situation in which it is the AFBs of this world who end up, um, you know, dominating that insurgent kind of uh, spirit in certain Thank you. Straight out here. Um, it's interesting that we always talk about liberal democracy as if the two have always been a happy couplet. And I'm not sure they have. In fact, I think you can see over the last 200 years how liberalism has evolved in a way that enables it to emasculate democracy. I think you see that most clearly with its celebration of individual rights and its, its love of minorities. In fact, anyone who is different is rather fawned over by liberals these days. And I think it's essentially a way of stopping the collective majority will from asserting itself. So the, the problem is actually quite a fundamental philosophical one. I don't think it's got anything at all to do with voting systems. It's only when we can actually ensure that democracy is in control of liberalism that we'll be able to make progress. Yeah, thanks. And then straight to the back. A point was made that if you look at the most deprived communities, they still vote Labour. My question is simple. Is that a flat correlation or is it sort of the most deprived vote Labour, then when you get to the more successful blue-collar constituencies, they start to flirt with the Tories, then you go back to Labour for sort of middle-class Islington socialist types, <laughs> and then right, right at the end you go back to the Tories for Top Hats and Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> Fab. And then uh, the road that you are sitting on here. There's gen Thanks. This is just a quick uh, how, question about the idea that PR produces transparent coalitions, because it seems to me that that's the opposite of the case. Under first-past-the-post, coalitions are formed inside parties, but the fact that they have to create an institution uh, has two advantages. The first is that they need to create long-term alliances which have a greater degree of internal coherence rather than cobbling something together. And the second is that those coalitions are formed before an election and the electorate have an opportunity to pass judgment on their programmes and install them in government directly, whereas coalitions formed under, per, per, uh, under PR are formed afterwards and no-one has the opportunity to vote on their programme or to hold them to account for it afterwards. Pick your poison, yeah. Fab. Then directly in front of you. If an MP is voted into Parliament in order to represent a group of people within the country, then 
um, and then arrives in Parliament to a situation where they're very much dictated by the party line and by the constraints of their party policy. Is there any need for parties at all? Is there any need for parties to be dictating the actual voting habits and policy habits of the pe people who are elected to represent the people themselves rather than the, polit the politics of their party? Yeah, thank you. And there was a hand over here. Yeah, um, I'm not so sure about proportional representation because where I come from, which is Switzerland, proportional representation leads to a situation in Parliament where you basically have the popular party, which is expressive of the will of the people, versus everyone else. And uh, it's really the case that, uh, in actual fact, there is not much difference between uh, the socialists, the Greens, uh, the Christian Democrats, and so on. And I think what would happen in England, uh, you know, should you adopt proportional representation, is the same. You would have Nigel Farage's party versus everyone else. And you would increasingly realise that uh, there is not much difference between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, and so on. And I think... Why not? Because there is the first in, in the UK to, because, you know, uh, UKIP got four million votes, but so little seats in Parliament. So there must be some kind of technical solution to accommodate for the realities that exist there. So isn't it time for big ideas, such as maybe uh, elections once a year, and maybe uh, that each MP must, uh, after his, uh, must be recallable at any time, and then after he has served his year, he must return to his constituencies and be judged by them and said, you have done well or you have betrayed us and then you can no longer be an MP for 10 years. Or possibly even, can we have free constituencies made into one in different parts of the country? That might force people no longer to think about local issues, but because they have no local alliances, uh, to think about the big ideas and issues of the nation. Um, yeah, like regionalism and regional representation has been a kind of bubbling away issue that I think is a really interesting one to consider in addition to the other things you said. There was one more hand that I saw before. First observation, social democratic parties across Europe and across the world are, are on the decline. I mean, you even saw that in the recent Uruguay elections. <laughs> Everywhere they're on the decline. And I think that's a reflection of the post-industrial age and to try and reinvent themselves many social democratic parties on the left are, are now um, shifting territory into identity politics. I think that's a, a, a greatly disturbing trend, actually, but um, nonetheless, they have to make themselves still relevant, and that's the way they're doing it. Um, if you look at the UK, I think first past the post, uh, my observation, is um, is very important factor in what's kept the two-party system together. The only reason, um, obviously, we mentioned the European elections, that's different because that's a different electoral system. And the SNP have gained ground simply because their vote is very concentrated in Scotland. Um, so when you get a concentration of votes in this more geographical area, that's the only way really insurgent parties can override the um, fast-past-the-post system. I wonder how much, it, I don't think it's been touched on or mentioned, or how much of the disillusions of people with politics has to do with consistency, or consistently seeing politicians publicly betray what they say they'll do without any accountability and frankly lie or make things up and it's never addressed publicly. People aren't hung, drawn and quartered or struck off. And I'm just wondering how, how you can expect people to believe in a political system that continuously 
fails. So we're saying that the political parties aren't dying, at least in the short term, and yet they're largely unrepresentative of the people. If we see a 75% Remain Parliament effectively come back in next time round, where does this end? Yeah, I, I've been struck in looking at the 1848 revolution that there are basically no books about it, but we see parallels with the 1848 revolutions where there are loads of national causes of people just saying, we've had enough. And yeah, there were a lot of economic reasons for that. But you know, wh where do we get to? Do we try and spend the next couple of decades in this cycle where people are supposed to be patient and, and things just gradually falling apart? Or do we eventually see people take to the streets? And if the political system isn't going to solve itself. Yeah, thank you. Shall we let's start on this end? Tom? Yes. Um, so we've heard a lot about the problem with representative democracy and its you know, refusal to actually reflect what people want. And also just the shamelessness of you know, standing on manifestos to uphold a referendum result and then just going completely the other way. I think this has done so much damage um, to people's faith in the process, but it's also really showed us kind of like a core tension in our system that has always existed. You know, this great debate, is an MP a delegate or is it a representative? Are they there? to do what their constituents say or are they there to exercise their good judgment? I think what we're seeing is the kind of playing out of that kind of key problem. It's quite clear that the public are on one side um, and a lot of politicians are very much on the other. On the question of proportional representation, which has come up a lot, um, and I think there definitely are problems with it. I think the reason I'm coming much round, more round to it in recent years and actually think it is something that we could pursue is the fact that what else is going to you know jolt the political system into just breaking up these main parties, creating space for new things, to happen. I mean, there's the point about the constituency link, which I think is actually really, really important. But at the same time, in so many ways, it's already been cut off. You know, Ed Miliband being the first MP for Doncaster, who wasn't a minor or a son <coughs> of a minor, is just one example of that. Um, and I think there are other ways that we can overcome this, but we do need to at least create that bit of space in order for something else to happen. I think just finally on the kind of question of, um, you know, what do we do now? I think that's part of the problem is that um, obviously we should continue to put pressure on our MPs, on our government in order to follow through on their promises. And obviously, in my view, the highest among them is to uphold the Brexit vote. But I think we also do need to start playing the long game a little bit. I think the obsession with these old, clapped-out, dead parties, the desperation to either take them over or kind of prod them from without just to make them do something slightly more what you want is something which um, hasn't been panning out too well, <laughs> to say the least, over the past couple of years. So we need bigger thinking, I think, and a bit more long-term thinking and a lot more ambition. Can I push you? Do you think we need bigger thinking about smaller parties? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. The thing about mass parties is, is that um, I think first of all, people need choice right now. Um, people need to be able to have their the core kind of you know things that divide society on the questions of Brexit, whatever else reflected in the parties that are on offer. If that means smaller parties, more parties for now, great. But I, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing in and of itself. Yeah. Thanks, Miranda. Uh, just to develop that thought of Tom slightly, it's also to do with this idea of if you then start to offer more choice, which I agree is a healthy thing, in fact, because it's a better way to represent the spectrum of opinions, but you then do get into this problem where you come up against, are we then going to have MPs elected on such a tiny proportion of the vote locally? And then who are they representing? Because everyone in this room, it seems to me, both you know, on the platform and, and the audience are preoccupied with this idea of what is representation, you know, and it's really fundamental and really important. So if you're coming up against a reality, which is this time 
quite a, quite a number of MPs being elected on 25% of the vote, 23% of the vote locally. And then who is it that they're speaking for? Because, you know, this idea that democracy is just to express the collective majority will, it sounds a bit to me as if what you're saying is other, the other opinions don't matter at all and don't have to be accommodated at all, you know, and the idea that an MP then, once they get to Parliament, should only speak for the people who elected, who voted yeah. for them. That really is quite unhealthy, I think, because the, one of the strengths that we have in our system is not just the constituency linked with an individual, but also the idea that once you're elected, you'll represent your whole constituency and all the people in your area. And that really is getting left out of the conversation about the will of the people. Because it should be all of the people, and that you know that that's actually really important. That balance, because otherwise, you, what you get is the tyranny of the majority, and that's very very unhealthy. Sherelle, I just want to pick up on what the gentleman was saying about the paradox of liberal democracy, because I agree, there is a philosophical tension at the heart of Western political culture, and between sort of democracy and liberalism, I think it is a problem. Going back even to the time of, of Plato and that, that antipathy towards the, the masses, the demos, um, democracy being something that was reviled and only really um, gained um, sort of approval very late on in Western history. And I would even argue that when we had the enfranchisement of the working class, the attitude then was that it was as a safety valve rather than because we believed in it and that we wanted to do it because we thought that it was important that everyone should have their say in democracy. I think it's very dangerous that while liberalism is rooted in very noble ideas of jurisprudence and rationalism and is wrapped up in the Enlightenment and that's all great, this idea that there is a right answer and you need to keep asking the question until you get the right answer. It's very dangerous in politics. It has done a lot of damage, frankly, to our democracy and faith in our democracy. And I think that it strikes at the heart of why, um, you know, the response to, to Brexit has been so damaging and so divisive. Um, I also want to pick up just very quickly on this point about um, the decline of social democratic parties, because I think it's really interesting my own take on that is just this reluctance on the part of centrist parties or centrist-minded people in politics to engage with big ideas. I think that this obsession with identity politics is actually a, um, is a symptom of that. It's navel-gazing. It's the big issues are too difficult, so we're going to obsess over these, these other issues instead. Um, and I think that... You know, and I think that also speaks to the problem with managerial politics um, because it's about process. Um, it's not about imagination. It's not about ideas. And we, I think that you know, the social democratic politics is in decline because it's lazy, frankly, and people are hungry for something better. I think that's a useful note to pass over to John. Yes, just make a couple of comments about the uh, the state of the. Uh, political system in this country and who's responsible for it. I mean, I think what has happened really is that Brexit has cut right across a lot of the party loyalties and the traditions and the aspirations of people and has been responsible for a lot of the malaise that we've got uh, at the moment. But I think it's very easy to blame the politicians we've got and said, oh, they haven't risen to the challenge and all the rest of it. But I think the challenge that they've got is actually an extremely difficult one. 
And I don't think they have done that badly in all the circumstances. But the trouble is that there has been enormous levels of disagreement. And we're back to this uh, statistic which has come up time after time, which is, you know, if you have 52% of the electorate voting for something and then Parliament has 75% of people who disagree with it, you have really got a recipe for difficulties and, and division and stasis, which is exactly the problem that we've now got. Turning to a slightly different issue, which is, you know, where social democracy has got, I mean, I do think it is worrying that... Uh, that Labour Party's support among working people is, is diminishing. And I think that the Labour Party is becoming just more and more of a middle-class party. It's more metropolitan. It's better educated. It's very much public sector orientated. I think it is obsessed with uh, some of the issues around uh, agenda that's on equality and uh, Me Too and, 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 and race and all these other things which actually don't really turn on people north of Watford all that much. And I think the difficulty then is you finish up with uh, a, a range of choice of parties which doesn't reflect where a lot of people really want to be, but it's actually very difficult to see how to pull a coalition together which is actually going to produce the sort of things they all uh, really want to work for. And I think one of the real problems that we've got in this country is until we have some sort of uh, realignment. I, I mean, I, my own personal hope is that what will happen is that the Labour Party will move uh, um, towards a more centrist position and produce more of a coalition between the working-class traditional supporters it's always had and the middle-class idealists who've supported it to provide some sort of bedrock again. Though whether this is going to happen, I think, remains to be seen. Um, yeah, certainly a really interesting part of a lot of the trends that have taken place over political life in the last few years is a question of kind of whether or not some of these new forces in society are there to create something new or there to influence the things that or the you know existing set of choices that are already open to people. Johnny, it seems like everyone agrees that um, the system is uh, in a state of paralysis and needs major major reform. Um, about the differences between pay on first past the post and advantages of either or neither. I've heard it. I've heard it um, put that you could have uh, PR in the Commons and a reformed Senate of Regions, which connected people more to places and communities. Um, I, I, I personally think it's a tragedy that the North East Assembly referendum wasn't won, and we didn't have devolution to the Northern Regions in that way. Um, that was Dominic Cummings' first referendum fighting against the, the regional assemblies. But I think a lot of the reason why uh, huge huge areas of the North and Midlands uh, did vote for Brexit and are sort of turning away from, um, perhaps turning away from the traditional parties that they used to vote for. It's because of the disconnect between Westminster and the rest of the country and this perception that, you know, down in London, every, everything, everyone's doing well, uh, which to an extent is, is true. It's the most prosperous city, but it's, it's that them and us um, between London and the rest of the country, which has been mentioned. Um, the gentleman at the back mentioned uh, about uh, how that graphic worked. I can show you at the end if, if you want to see, but um, but basically it is it is it's it's, it's indices indices such as I mean I think it's it's difficult it's difficult when you talk about working class people abandoning labour because I think Quick the categories that they use are about blue collar workers essentially still a lot of the time and it kind of goes if you work in an office and you're an English literature graduate. Uh, then suddenly you're B2 or whatever it is, you know, so you're middle class. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take into account the fact that you could be earning sort of 19 grand a year, 
living in London, you can't find a room for less than £650. You know, you've got no money, no hope of saving, no hope of buying a house, yeah. but you're middle class and you vote Labour. You know, and this, the, the boundaries of class have changed. It's been a complete decline of the traditional industries and manual labour and trade unionism. So I, I don't think you can look at, look at it in that way still. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Thanks. Okay, I'm coming out for a very final, very quick round of questions. I'm taking at most three, and then we're coming back to our panel. I just wanted to ask the panel, sort of going down the line, if PR has its problems and so does First Past the Post, what would be each of your favourite alternatives to either of those? Yep, and in front. Yes, hi. Uh, I hope this question isn't beyond the geographical scope of the discussion thus far, but it's about the Gilets Jaunes and in France, and how you diagnose that, your analysis of the Gilets Jaunes phenomenon. Uh, so they revolted against the, uh, the fuel tax. Uh, Macron Very got rid quickly. of the fuel tax. So in that respect, it's a kind of victory for direct democracy and direct action. Uh, but on the other hand, in the war of attrition between the Gilets Jaunes and the government, the government seems to have won, and the movement hasn't been able to allow itself to be co-opted by the party system in France. Uh, and does that indicate a limitation yeah. of this kind of post-party politics. Thanks. Thanks. Just a very quick one. The uh, experience of what happened in Northern Ireland, where the centrist parties Thanks. vanished, yeah. and yeah. you still have a two-party state in Northern Ireland, but it's a different two parties. OK. There's been a lot of ground covered over the course of this discussion. I'm going to start in the kind of same order we originally started with, uh, starting with Johnny. There's too much to tackle. There's a lot that will be happening over the next sort of, in the, the period of the election. What specifically in the next sort of six to eight weeks are you going to be looking at really closely? What do you think is the one development, all of our panellists, that, that you think will really indicate for you what the shape of this election and the shape of our political system will look like for the foreseeable future? Wow. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to be um, sort of looking very closely at whether the polls turn in the same way that 2017 did. Um, and, and, and I hope they do, to be honest, um, perhaps unlike most of the, the rest of the panel. <laughs> I actually think what Labour's putting forward is a, a sort of standard... Well, if it's anything like the 2017 manifesto, it's not unlike an old-style standard Scandi social democratic manifesto, sort of mild renationalisation of utilities, water, etc., etc. little more tax on the rich, a bit more corporation tax. This isn't... Four-blooded storm, the House of Parliament, Marxism. I mean, people may say that, but it's just not. Implementing that kind of thing would go some way to addressing what the country uh, needs economically um, in terms of distributing power and wealth um, and, yep. and meeting people's concerns. So this sounds like a Labour Party election pitch, doesn't it, Michael? <laughs> yes. I'm cutting you off there in favour of impartiality rules. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, just briefly on the two questions that were answered, uh, I would not favour a move towards PR for all the reasons that have been discussed. And I think the Gilets Jaunes are typical of the sort of populist uh, uprisings that have gone right across the West, which actually in the end haven't really produced very much in the way of positive and long-term uh, results. As regards the election, my guess is that we're going to finish up uh, with a Conservative not getting a majority. You get some sort of left-centre coalition, which is going to water down very substantially the sort of uh, process that Labour's put forward. And then we'll finish up in something of a sort of status that I think most of the discussion here this morning has uh, decided is not what we want. Thanks, Sherelle. Interesting what the gentleman was saying about centrism collapsing um, in Northern Ireland. Was it Northern Ireland? Yeah, Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that this speaks to what is going, going to be going on with our election as well. I think that 
whoever gains the most ground in the coming weeks is going to be the party that really tries to respond to the big questions with big ideas. As a Tory, I actually found Jeremy Corbyn's opening gambit, whose side are you on, quite powerful. I think that that will cut through in a lot of marginals that the Tories are after. My question for the Tories then will be, what, what, is, their, what is their counter narrative that's going to encapsulate um, the message that they want to put across in this election? And how are they going to encapsulate the spirit of Brexit into um, one a one line or one phrase. And if they don't have that, then they are going to do a lot worse than people think. Thanks, Miranda. PR versus, versus first past the post. I want something else, actually. I'd like radical devolution because I think the Scottish Parliament has worked very, very well. And when you talk to people in Scotland, they feel that politics is close to them and responds to them. And obviously, you know, SNP is not perfect and all the rest of it, but I think that's actually the way to go. I think our parliamentary electoral system is a secondary issue and that devolution would, would, do, a, would do a lot to, to help that feeling of sort of, dis, of disconnect. And then maybe you could do something with the dreadful mess that is the House of Lords and make that regional representation chamber. I think that's actually a really good idea. I think it was Gord Brown originally, actually, wasn't it? Um, Gilets jaunes, yeah, there's a huge problem. If you decide, OK, our number one issue facing politics now is climate change... The, the, you know, one of the main ways we're going to tackle that is by punishing people who already feel that they're downtrodden. You're going to get an uprising. So it's a kind of lesson for all, you know, elite political class people trying to take on the climate change challenge. You can't just, but you know, that's what, what happened in Stoke-on-Trent, right? They decided to ta- massively tax the ceramics industry and all these in- energy-intensive industries, and people lost their jobs. You know, you've really got that was Ed Miliband's mistake. You've really got to be careful. Um, Northern Ireland, I think other people have dealt with. Um, I, well, things I'm, I'm looking out for in the election, pacts and alliances, whoever manages to kind of coalesce the vote on the Leave or Remain side will 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 do much better. And again, I think that raises questions of legitimacy. I don't like it when people stand down for other candidates, actually, unless it's yeah. very exceptional circumstances. I think people should be offered a choice. And I don't like the kind of you know, the kind of virtue signalling posturing about why aren't you standing down for us? I think it's really annoying. Um, and also I think Finally. it's going to be very interesting to see if Labour can get away with greening a very left-wing economic programme to say, oh, well, actually, this is all about climate change, because I think they'll probably do quite well if they pitch it that way, you know, which would be a contrast to 2017. Green New Day. Tom? Yeah, uh, so quickly, the thing I'll be looking out for in the election, I think, will be the uh, percentage of the Tory vote in these working-class constituencies they're targeting. Not necessarily think because I think it's going to shoot up. I think this this theory that Boris Johnson is the man that you know the northern working classes has been waiting for is a strange theory that I'm excited to see tested. But nevertheless, I think what they've actually got in mind is something a bit more cynical. I think what they want is a kind of 1983 situation where they stand still, the opposition gets eaten away a little bit, and they can sneak through, which I think um, speaks to the opportunism of this current uh, government. But I think the broader question is what's really fascinating. There's a piece in the Guardian about this um, the other day. Is the fact that by and large, people actually want this election. <laughs> Frustrated as a lot of people feel, you know, exhausted as a lot of people feel. Because I think that um, Brexit in particular began a kind of process through which um, just democracy came back. You know, even though we time and time again didn't see what we voted for being implemented, still that pressure was growing. And I think that um, using this election as the opportunity to kind of just push that a bit further, to hold politicians to account, the fact that at the very least, Anna Subri is certain to lose her seat. I think it's an instant win for democracy. So we look forward to that. Um, on that note, can we please thank all of our panellists?
You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at thebattleofideas.org.uk. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and to stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.